G'day guys, in today's episode, we sit down with former Hawthorne great Gary Bacanara as he reflects on his time at the highest level, including the famous kick after the siren in the 1987 prelim final, the brutal 1989 grand final, and his role in getting Buddy Franklin to the Hawks. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. G'day everyone and welcome to episode 34 of the Pressure Point podcast. I'm uh, joined as always by my co-host Quinn DeLuca. How you going mate? Very good mate, very good. The, uh, I'm pretty happy at the moment. The Tigers are back on the winners list. We beat the Saints in the semi and we're on to the prelims so another exciting year ahead hopefully. That's it, that's it. Yeah, you would be happy. Yeah, first semi-final win in a, what, nearly 20 years isn't it? Yeah, well it's the first yeah. one I've ever seen. Um, yeah. so it was something different but it was good. It was good to see us get over the line, get some... Uh, get another game under the belt for a few of the blokes that have missed a lot of the season. It was good. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, sets up a big, big prelim, another prelim for the Tigers. So exciting week for you. Very. Yeah. Um, but this episode's uh, even more exciting. We've got former Hawthorne great Gary Bacanara. Thank you for joining us. Uh, pleasure to be with you, boys. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, geez, mate, having a look at your, at your, at your resume, four-time premiership player, Three-time All-Australian, Hawthorne Team of the Century, and Hawthorne Hall of Fame. It's uh, it's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, look, it's uh, it's always nice to look back on those things. At the time, you you know you you're just trying to do the best you can as a player and uh, contribute to the team. And um, I was very fortunate to be a part of a, a wonderful era at Hawthorne, and um, you know created so many wonderful memories. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we'll strip it right back to the start. So we'll go, we'll go back to your early footy days. So talk to us about your your footy growing up as a kid and, and coming through the uh, the junior ranks. Yeah, look, uh, I'm a Perth boy. So um, born in uh, Western Australia in Perth and so grew up uh, over there. And, you know, obviously uh, footy and cricket were a big part of uh, growing up uh, and, um, you know, to be honest, I was probably more interested in cricket than in footy. Uh, played both sports, of course, and spent many hours down the parks uh, kicking footy after school with um, with mates and having shots for goals and little uh, one-on-ones, two-on-twos, three-on-three uh, little games, etc. And in cricket season, it was down to the nets and um, doing that until it was dark and until we had to go home. So... Um, yeah, sport was always a big part of my life and, uh, and loved that. And, uh, um, you know, as, uh, as it grew, um, yeah, um, cricket initially was really good for me. I played first grade district cricket for a club like, uh, for a club called Scarborough Cricket Club uh, when I was 17 years of age and uh, played with the likes of Dennis Lilly, Rod Marsh, uh, Tom Hogan, Greg Shippard, Robbie Langer, um, Derek Chadwick. Uh, Sam Gannon, Mick Malone. So it was a pretty good uh, team that I uh, played with. And, um, you know, uh, that's where the cricket sort of, for me, as a 17-year-old, was um, first and foremost. And footy, I played for fun. I played amateurs uh, from 17 years of age uh, until um, 21 years of age. Uh, So I played four years of the great amateurs with my mates. Yeah, awesome, awesome. And then, well, so obviously, yeah, Beat, you said you're from WA. So, what was the process of, of getting picked up by the Hawks? Um, was it 
was Hawthorne sort of had a, a zone with WA. How, how did that all work back then? Well, uh, back in the uh, 80s, uh, each club had two form fours, they called them, per year to use on interstate players um, to come and play in the VFL. And um, from E-grade amateurs, I went, uh, was asked to go to my uh, allocated uh, waffle club, uh, which was Subiaco, because I, I lived in their zone, so I could only play for Subiaco. Um, and went there in 1979 and... Um, Within, um, you know, at the start of the, the season, I did pre-season and then I was selected in the first game and within six games, I was selected in the state squad to uh, to play against South Australia. Um, and uh, by about halfway through the year, every VFL club back then had uh, approached me to sign a Form 4 with them. So things happened pretty quickly and um, that's where the, the footy sort of took over momentum from my cricket. Yeah, right. I mean, that just, I guess, speaks wonders for the, the talent you must have had at such a young age. And you did say that you um, you moved over and went to the Hawks at the age of 24. And I've recently just had my 24th birthday. So you give me a fair bit of hope that I still might be able to get picked up. <laughs> um, aside from that, well, before we get into your VFL career, tell us what it was like playing state of origin footy, because we know that you did tend, you did tend to give the Vicks a fair bit of trouble back then um, for some of the games you played. What was that like? Yeah, look... Um WA was so passionate about, you know, the footballers it produced, I guess. And uh, back back in the uh, in the days in the, you know, 80s and 70s and 60s, a lot of WA players came and played in the VFL. And much to the disappointment of uh, WA fans, uh, a lot of them came back and represented Victoria and played state footy against uh, WA. And uh, uh, so when State of Origin came to the fore, WA... Uh, People, of course, there was no national competition back in the uh, uh, until 1987. Um, WA people just love those state of origin games where all the WA players came back and represented WA, and you know we held our own and and actually had some great wins over Victoria. And um, playing in those games was just amazing because the pace of the game, there wasn't a lot of tactics. It was basically the best go out and play against the best and. The ball movement was so quick. The skills were so good and um, they were great games to be a part of. Yeah, State of Origin was obviously a very popular game. Um, I know it was played during the week and I have seen footage of some of the crowds you guys used to draw midweek. It didn't look like many people were getting up to a lot of work back then. But um... <laughs> Yeah, a lot of lunches. <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly right, a lot of lunch breaks. But um, another thing as well, you were known for your high-flying grabs and being a short fellow myself, I don't get up too high. Was that was that something you worked on or were you always just naturally gifted at sort of getting pretty high up? Uh, look, as kids, you know, it was all part of the things we used to do down the park. We used to, you know, go for the speckies and all of us used to take turns in being the, the mug that used to, you know, have the ball kicked up against him and you'd bend down and let all the blokes jump on your back and take speckies. So I guess that's where, you know, I learned the craft of jumping on somebody's back and um, you've got to have a bit of a leap to be able to do it. Um, so, yeah, I always had a pretty good leap. And, um, you know, those sort of um, skill sets that we used to learn down the park, including kicking for goals, um, understanding your own kicking style and learning to take speckies, you know, to keep your eye on the ball, even though you've got a big hoist up, you know, on somebody's back. It was all a part of the learning process and, um, you know, uh, that's that's where I probably learned. 
you know, to jump on somebody's back. I definitely held you in good stead. And um, onto the Hawks, you go. The Hawks played in eight grand finals in nine years. They won five of them, and you were um, a four-time premiership player yourself. Without being humble, is that is that the most dominant AFL VFL side we've ever seen? Look, um, you know, all the eras are different. Um, I think it's it's harder to build a list. You have to be so good with list management nowadays, given that we have a, a draft and and even today the draft is so compromised with now, you know, academy players and NGAs, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, you, it, it is harder to build teams, whereas back in the 80s, 70s, probably the better off uh, teams in the um, – AFL and the teams up the top of the ladder were able to attract the best interstate players and build better lists than um, other clubs. But um, to have a dominant era like that, I don't care whatever era you played in, it's hard to come up year after year after year because you're always the team people are hunting to beat when you've uh, won a premiership or you've been a side like Hawthorne was. And and that creates its own pressure, as it does today for teams. And, um, yeah, look, it was a wonderful era, and I think our Hawthorne side of the 80s would stand up in any era. Yeah, absolutely. That team, you know, it was a lot before me and Quinn's time, but, geez, we've seen some footage of that, and it just looks like an unbelievable team and unbelievable era to play in. And, um, yeah, I think it's unrivaled, in, in my opinion. But, um, you know, you've probably been asked this a lot of times, but... What was it like playing with the the great Dermot Brereton? You know, I'm sure there are plenty of funny stories about him on and off the field. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a lot of the stuff off the field. You, you know, he was a, he was a character, and what you see with Dermot's what you get. You know, and um, yeah, um, he had a big ego, but that was one of the great things at, at Hawthorne. You know, that ego made him a great player, but. Um, you know, Alan Jeans was always saying to the players, you know, there were some great players and some big egos, etc., in that side. But he always demanded the the egos were taken off before. You know, as you walk through the doors, take your ego off, hang it on the um, the coat hanger, and then when you leave and train and pick up your ego and uh, and on you go. But don't don't bring it to the footy club when you're training, playing, etc. Um, because it's about the team, not about the individual. So he managed that very well. And Dermot, uh, to his credit, was just a, a wonderful teammate and uh, fantastic to play alongside of, you know. And, uh, uh, it, you know, my opponents always used to know Dermot was around, you know, so they'd always maybe having a sneaking look. Uh, and, you know, it was the same with Lee Matthews. Lee Matthews used to play behind me uh, and my opponents knew Lee Matthews was behind them as well. So maybe that might have gained you a metre uh, <laughs> on your opponent every now and then. So uh, it was nice to have those players that could make that uh, real big physical impact when required. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you still keep in touch, touch with a lot of the, your former teammates from, from back then? Yeah, look, we've uh, been very fortunate. I think, again, in the eras, uh, our era was far different. You know, we all worked and uh, we used to come to training after work and spend a lot of time together. After games, we used to go, um, you know, back to the social club for, um, you know, some meals and get-togethers and, you know, we stayed close and then we'd probably go to someone's place and the kids would all sleep on the beds and, and, and we'd have a few beers and have some fun together. So, 
that's basically what we did right throughout that uh, era and we created great friendships for life. Whereas I think today's modern players, it's more about a job. Um, they're full-time footballers, that's their occupation and I think there's a period of time where they want to get away from it because they spend so much time uh, together as as sort of colleagues really uh, and come together on a Saturday to play. So I don't think there's going to be you know the great mateships uh, in the modern footy that there was back in the 60s, 70s and 80s and, and even into the 90s. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, as you said, they're, they're, they're colleagues now. It's their full-time profession and, um, you know, that, that sort of balance that they have, it's, it is definitely a lot different. Um, but another question that you've probably been asked a million times as well is that um, the famous 1987 prelim final, um, yeah, yeah. Run, run us through that that whole experience. You know, from the the kick after the siren. You know, Jim Stein's running through the mark. It's obviously you know one of the game's most famous moments. Um, you know, what, what was that whole experience like? Well, the day was a weird day because we kicked against the wind for three quarters. You know, I can remember clearly Melbourne going with the wind in the first quarter, and we were looking forward to kicking with the wind in the second. And at quarter time, basically the wind just turned straight around and blew down the other end. So for the first half, we kicked against a really strong breeze and um, we, you know, uh, we were always behind all day. And, and to be honest, uh, before my kick, Melbourne had, I reckon, three or four chances to sew the game up and just kept missing. And we just kept kicking at a goal uh, yeah, just to give us some hope and got to the point where, you know, that final kick with 25 seconds or 15 seconds on the clock where Michael kicked, uh, Tuck kicked it out and Swabby marked it, handball to Langford and Langford kicks it to me and I get a free kick. The siren had gone just after I got pushed in the back, but I didn't hear it. Um, and, um, and of course, I don't think the umpire heard it, nor did Jim Steins, et cetera. And, um, you know, Dipper claims credit for dragging Steinsy through the mark, you know, uh, trying to create a loose man in the pocket and Steinsy saw him and ran through the mark, gave 15 metres away, uh, took me to around about 35, 40 metres out and um, history uh, says that I kicked the goal. And look, it's it's one of those childhood dreams, you know, uh, down those uh, park all the time when it was dark and you had to go home for tea. Uh, you'd have that final one kick to go home and it'd be to win a grand final um, with that, one kick for goal and, um, you know, doing it in a preliminary final to, uh, to get your side into a grand final was uh, was an amazing experience. Obviously, no one will know now, but did you have that kick from, from outside 50 before they gave away the 15-man penalty? Would you have kicked it? Uh, well, I always say to Melbourne supporters I would have because it makes them feel <laughs> a bit better. Um, but, you know, I was always very confident in my kicking ability. Um you know, if you look at the kick, uh, it went through. Um, I think it hit a Melbourne supporter in the back of the head on his way out of the stadium about 30 rows back. So um, <laughs> uh, I reckon I may have made it. So, uh, But, uh, yeah, I was always confident in my ability to kick the goal. But no one will actually know that. Um, you know, the history shows that I kicked it from 40 metres out and uh, it went straight through well, you'll, you'll take that any day of the week. Um, obviously, t- in today's game, it's now a 50-metre penalty. It's a little bit further. What, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's a little bit harsh and it should maybe go back to the 15-metre penalty that it used to be? 
Well, it got to the point with a 15-metre penalty that clubs were exploiting it, just happy to give away a 15-metre penalty uh, and, you know, scrag the player who sort of had a mark or to stop them being able to move the ball quickly. So that's why the 50-metre penalty came in because, you know, uh, clubs were quite prepared to give away a 15-metre penalty, especially, say, from the centre so that people could get back and, and block it up and you could waste a bit of time for the ball going forward. So uh, 50 metres uh, came in, whether there's a happy medium of, you know, 25, 30 metres, but um, I don't know. I, I, I think the 50 metre rule can be a bit, I don't I like it when, you know, they give it for a player encroaching, you know, in their space. So I think that's just uh, too harsh, uh, especially when it has no impact on the player itself with the footy and uh, how quickly he can move it on, etc. So if, if I was going to change something, I'd just get rid of that because I just don't think that's a, a fair rule at all. It's too big a penalty, especially if, you know, it's done in the centre circle and the player then goes to about 25 metres out and has an easy shot on goal. The penalty uh, is too harsh for the crime, you know, so get rid of it, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you there. I'm a big, I'm a big believer in um, you should probably leave the game alone because it was perfect the way it was. And bringing in when they brought in rules like that, I think it probably changes it a little bit. But um, yeah, I'm, I agree with you. There. I'm more than happy to change that one. But we'll move on to um, to Alan Jeans. Obviously, he was a coach of yours, and from the outside, we can only see and hear so much. I mean, obviously, he was a great coach, a great motivator. Uh, myself, before my junior games, I used to watch a little motivational speech he had on YouTube, you know, just to get me fired up. But um, what was he like behind the cameras, you know, in between the four walls of the of the club? Yeah, look, uh, he came across as very dour, you know, especially in his interviews on TV, and uh, uh, he gave nothing away. But, look, he had a great sense of humour. Um, you know, he loved his players, and, and he got to know his players what got the best out of them. And I think that's a modern-day trait that's really important in today's footy, that coaches are more man-managers now and uh, they get to know their players and what brings the best out of them. And um, Alan was probably before his time in doing that. He, you know, he was a fantastic orator. Um, you know, he always um, spoke really passionately before a game and um, he was always able to pinpoint areas at halftime with a how we were going and, and where we were going well and areas we probably needed to pick up on. Um, but he also knew who we could give a rocket to and who we couldn't and who we needed to bunk up and um, try and get them to believe in themselves. And so words of encouragement for those types of players. So he never really uh, castigated um, players um, in front of other players, uh, only players he knew would respond and that was Ali Matthews uh, which didn't happen that often but whenever Yabby asked Lee for an effort if we weren't were going well something always happened he'd kick five goals in the quarter or someone to go off on a stretcher um, and uh, the same with Dermot and same with Dipper those players you know reacted to um, him you know in front of the other players maybe asking them for a better effort and um you know, they always responded. So he was a, he was a wonderful coach um, and uh, the players loved him. Yeah, absolutely. He's uh, revered as, as arguably one of the best and, um, you know, I've heard some great stories about Jeansy. But we'll um, we'll move on. The, the 
then add in on grand final, you know, it's regarded by many as the greatest grand final of all time. Um, what was it like playing in it? Was it, was it as brutal as they all say it was? Look, it was pretty tough. There's no doubt about it. I think, uh, I'd love I'd love the current MRP to uh, to actually watch watch that game back and see how many reports they make out of it. I reckon half half of each each team would have uh, you know been suspended. So there was a lot going on off the ball and around the footy. Um, and probably if Geelong had their time again, they probably went overboard in the first quarter at least. And um, you know we got a lot of free kicks or free kicks down the field and, um, you know, and got goals from, you know, un, undisciplined sort of acts and with them going for the ball and probably Buddha Hocking was one of the main offenders there in um, just being over wound up to play in a grand final. And grand finals are about, you know, real pressure at the footy, at that contest, keeping your eye on the footy and um, playing the footy, um, when you play the man, because you've got to understand umpires are trying to get control, knowing players are really wound up to win a grand final. So they try and get control early and, and, and pinpoint free kicks very quickly. And that's what happened with Geelong, you know, and they uh, we ended up with something like six or seven or eight goals in the first quarter to their two and just, you know, they played catch up for the rest of the day, even though they got within a kick. Um, you know, catch up um, is always hard to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've rewatched that grand final a lot of times, and um, geez, the the brutality of that game is just something you just don't see these days. And um, yeah, you could, you kind of wish that was back. Um, you know, that that sort of brutality um, and, and the kinds of players that were playing in it. And just touching on that grand final as well, Gary uh, Gary Ablett. What was it like playing against him, and or in, in particular on that day as well? Well, he's such a, a brilliant player, you know, like he was doing things, um, you know, that you sort of, as an opposition player, you would shake your head and say, you know, how did he do that? You know, um, and in the end, he was a player that we were sort of, I was saying to myself, I wish he'd go off, you know, or I wish he'd get injured, you wish, he, you wish on nobody, but at the, he looked likely to be the one that, by, you know, nearly by himself that was going to cost us a grand final, but... Uh, such was his performance, uh, kicking nine goals in, um, you know, in just a, a magnificent performance. And, um, yeah, look, you had to take your hat off to him. Um, you know, winning the Norm Smith medal in a in a losing side is always uh, very hard to do, especially. Uh, so you've got to put it in a special performance, and he did that and nearly got Geelong across the line, but thankfully he didn't. A lot of people probably forget that Gary Ablett actually um, actually played with you guys at Hawthorne for I think it was only maybe six games or so. I bet you were probably mm. wishing he was on your side that day. Yes, yeah. Um, what could have been, hey? Uh, yeah. He just didn't cope with um, city life and, um, you know, uh, he just, um, you know, was a bit unreliable in turning up to training every now and then, which didn't please Alan Jeans and, you know, he... He was he was moved on, but I think everybody knew, including Alan, how talented he was. But again, Alan wouldn't make special rules for one and not for others. So uh, that was all a part of the mantra of, you know, buying into the club and you know being one team and you know rules for one, other rules for everybody. And, um, uh, yeah. So, but 
Fine sights, a uh, wonderful thing, and congratulate. I think he went away and played country footy for a couple of years and then got the opportunity down Geelong, which is probably a good fit for him. He was able to live in a bit of property outside of Geelong and um, enjoy his footy down there and become one of the greats. Yeah, absolutely. And and speaking of great players, in your opinion, who do you think is the greatest? Like you, you play with a lot of great players, but who do you think is the greatest player that, that you played with um, in your career? Look, there were so many. Um, I played with Lee Matthews at the end of his career. You know, like he, um, I played with him 82, 83, 84, 85. Um, uh, he was getting on. Uh, he's five foot nine, built like the old brick proverbial. And, um, uh, but he was playing basically full forward and kicking around 70 goals every year, um, even at that stage of his uh, career, you know, 70, 60, 50, something like that. And, you know, um, and having an impact as well every now and then when he'd go into the midfield. So I saw what a great champion he was and, you know, in his prime, how good he must have been to be able to play with as that midfielder ball who would win the footy and, and get the ball forward. But um, so I'd just say, you know, um, his influence was, was amazing and playing with him. He didn't say much, but his actions spoke louder than words. Your AFL, your playing career, I should say, VFL at the time, your um, playing career was obviously next to none. The accolades speak for themselves. But you, you did go on to do a fair bit in football after your playing career. I know you coached the Swans for a little bit and then even went on to be a recruiter for the Hawks, which is where uh, my gripe with you comes in a little bit there. Uh, being a rich supporter. <laughs> the year is 2004 and the Tigers passed on uh, Buddy Franklin. And famously, thanks to your keen eye for talent, um, you did not. Um, you also picked up Roughhead and Lewis in that same draft. Back then, did you did you? I mean, obviously you saw their talent, but did you predict they were going to become the players that they did? Well, you can never really predict that because a lot of things happen. But yeah, you, you know, you look at the talent, you look in the crystal ball to a degree, and you know, with both Roughhead and Franklin, you could see that you know they were they were going to have great frames. Um, you know, we knew Buddy was super quick and very athletic, but what we didn't realise is he had such a big engine. You know, that was something that came out once he got to the club and, the, you know, sports science people sort of uh, were testing him and looking at him and they said, this guy's just an elite athlete. He's got a huge upside engine, which we never really saw. Uh, we didn't predict that he had that. We just saw he had the athleticism and pace and was a very hard matchup and, your crystal ball would tell you that he'd put on a nice bit of size because of his body. He was a skinny little kid and so was Ruffy. Both of them were going to become, you know, big groups in, you know, two or three, four years with their pre-seasons and weights under their belts. Um, and Louis was a little bit chubby and um, uh, Buddy was a real footballer. And um, that's what I loved about him. He was tough. He carried a a fair bit of weight as a junior um, and he stripped that off um, and became super fit as well. And so to the credit of three of them, they worked very hard. They dedicated themselves and, you know, they became um, really pivotal players for Hawthorne through that era. I guess a bit like the uh, the kick in the prelim and you say that, you know, you tell everybody that you would have had that shot from outside 50. It's the same with this. You can just tell everybody that you knew dead well that they were going to be the players that they turned out to be. <laughs> <laughs> just claim yeah, it. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, they had the talent. There's no doubt about that. The uh, 
the the part that was great was the the planning of it, you know, and how we would get the two key position players, you know, and that's where Intel can play a big part. And you know, uh, as I say to people, we we knew if we took Franklin with the first pick, we wouldn't have got Ruffhead because Richmond were going to take him, and so we we swapped the picks and went for um, Ruffhead with pick two, and we had Intel to say Richmond um, were a bit off buddy in terms of wondering whether he was able to cope with the limelight uh, of AFL because he was a bit of a, a young lad. Um, he was very lackadaisical and casual. In fact, uh, at the draft camp down in Canberra, uh, we were waiting for our buddy to turn up to our interview and he didn't turn up you know, at the draft camp and uh, we went looking for him and there he was laying on his bed with his feet up uh, watching TV. Um, and we said, you know, you're supposed to be in an interview with us. And it didn't bother him. Oh, am I? Oh, sorry about that. Uh, um, yeah, so we, we sort of heard that Richmond had gone slightly off him and we took a punt that um, they'd go another way and we'd get Franklin. And that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> that is incredible. Jeez, Quinn, that, that, must, that must hurt to hear. Um. <laughs> oh, it does. It does. I was obviously happy with Delidio, but uh, choosing Tambling over uh, Buddy Franklin definitely hurts looking back on their, on their career. <laughs> um, well, yeah, speaking of Buddy, do you, do you think he did enough at Hawthorne to, to go down as a, as a real great of the club, as in like, you know, one of their top players in the history? I, I know obviously he moved on to Sydney um, and spent you know, the back half of his career there, but do you think he was dominant enough at Hawthorne to, to put him right in that top bracket of players at the club? Look, I think he helped set an era, um, you, know, um, you know, playing in that 208 uh, premiership and losing to Sydney in the uh, 212 um, was probably, uh, and then he went to Sydney in 213. So um, it, uh, it sort of, oh, look, his whole career, he's one of the, greats of the game so you've got to say that you know Hawthorne was a big part of that you know he played in a premiership he hasn't played in a premiership with the Swans so he'll always be a Hawthorne premiership player and regarded as one of the great players uh, of the modern era so um, I think you know he can look proudly back at his time at Hawthorne and and people at Hawthorne look proudly at his time um, and regard him um, you know, as one of the you know, great players that come through our club. Yeah, for sure. I think mean, there's no no arguing with that. Um, yeah, but continuing on with your your, your post career and um, yeah, your time away from the from footy, um, you also went on to work for the the Franks and Dolphins in the VFL. Um, yeah, tell us about your experience with them and, and yeah, working at a at a VFL club like the Dolphins. Yeah, look, um, you know they provided um, an opportunity. Uh, I'd sort of. Uh, you know, wasn't quite happy with the way things were in the AFL and the types of uh, people coming into the industry. And um, so uh, getting back to grassroots footy uh, was really uh, was really rewarding. And it's particularly trying to help a club that had a long history, but financially were in real trouble and were likely to fold and having a plan and helping them to uh, re-get their licence back uh, to play in the VFL again. Um, was really re- rewarding, and um, you know that um, I did that for about two and a half years and helped them you know, get back. Uh, and um, yeah, being a football all rounder again was great, you know, because at that level, that's what you have to be. You know, you 
you know, you have to be the the uh, cook and the bottle and the dishwasher as well. So, um, <laughs> you know, basically you got to do everything. And, um, yeah, it was an enjoyable long hours, um, you know, and probably I wouldn't want to do that now. <laughs> but uh, I was happy to do it at that time. Yeah, absolutely. What what do you what are your thoughts on the VFL going forward? Obviously, with with COVID and everything, it's really thrown a lot of it um, under question. Well, how do you how do you see it going forward from here? Well, ideally, I'd love to see, and I I, I did an article in the Herald Sun um, going back probably three or four months ago about the second tier because the problem. I see for the kids in the um, talent pathway in Victoria, which provides around 50%, let's say, round figures of players drafted every year. Um, The system is discriminating against the kids that don't get picked up or rookie listed because they've then got to um, go to an AFL system that's, uh, to me, broken. You've got... AFL-aligned clubs, AFL standalone clubs and VFL standalone clubs. Um, these kids come in and they can't get games because of so many AFL players. And the um, the sides like Williamstown and Port Melbourne, which are standalone sides, have established lists. So these kids find it hard to break into them. And really the two teams like Coburg and Frankston with quite weak lists, uh, financially not very well off, um, you know, where the kids can get a game, but they're in a, a sides that you get beaten most weeks, uh, which is not a great environment to develop your footy. Um, or they don't get a game and then they've got to go back and play local footy, which is tier three football. Um, whereas the kids in the Sandful and the Waffle play in clubs um, where if they, if they don't get a game at Sandful senior level, they play reserves. And, you know, that is a far better scenario. So I put a thing forward that we have a state league VFL competition with clubs in the country. And, um, you know, we utilise our um, standalone sides and then have areas um, all around Victoria. Um, And the AFL 10 teams um, should have their own reserves competition played as curtain raise. And... um, and that way, the pathway for the kids coming out of the talent pathway, 18 and 9 year olds, gives them a far better opportunity to play in a proper state league competition. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. And I think, um, yeah, having the pure reserves team for, for every AFL, uh, Victorian AFL team would be great. And um, yeah, having those curtain raises back would be would be awesome as well. So yeah, totally agree with that. Um, but you did you did mention that you you do some work with the Herald Sun as well and writing articles and um, I did see you do a, a Carlton list analysis this morning which I loved and um, you know obviously being a Carlton fan yeah I love what you wrote about and you've obviously been pretty bullish about the Blues as well I've noticed in previous articles so how, how do you how do you see them going forward as well? Look, I think they're building the right way um, and um, you know they've got some some players now. It's time to add some. As I said in the article, I think. The real area they need is uh, to give Patrick Cripps a hand with a lot of the, you know, with some decent big-bodied midfielders to help him out. Otherwise, uh, Cripps will have a shorter career than he uh, he um, he should have if he does, because he's just doing too much of that work without any support. Um, he gets a bit of support, but not as much as he needs. And you know, if you look at the 
sides like Richmond, etc. They're big bodied, you know, Port Adelaide. Big bodied midfielders are really important, like Crips, um, but they need more of them. Um, I think their list is building quite good. Um, adding Saad is a is a great um, is a great opportunity, and Williams uh, will add you know some quality and some pace into that midfield or off half back. Saad's such a damaging kick, you know, to get the ball into that um, potentially good forward line that they have. Um, so I think things are building the right way. Their defensive six is coming across nicely. Um, so, yeah, yeah, onwards and upwards, I think, for them, so long as they do the right things in list management and recruiting. Personally, I'm not sure that the is the right uh, um, fit for them. Um, there's, to me, it's buyer beware uh, with uh, Jordan. He's very inconsistent. He has a history of injuries. He's had a history of off-field incidents. Um, and in, in a side like Carlton, You've got to be very careful in bringing the right types that are going to, um, you know, knuckle down. And and to me, he's just going for money, which is not the real reason um, to go. Um, so if I was Carlton, I'd be saying, no, thank you. Um, I'll, we'll just stick our course and go with Sard and Williams. And to me, I'd be looking at another inside mid-type player like a Luke Parker, et cetera, um, you know, to see if he could get Sydney to, to let him go. Um, that would be what I'd be doing. Um, so uh, it, we'll see what happens as this plays out. Um, but, yeah, I'd be a bit worried about if I was Carlton supporter about getting Jordan going. He can really play, no doubt about that. But is he going there for the right reasons? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I completely agree with that. I think um, yeah, I think the Dugowie one's a bit... Bit, yeah, I think it's the direction can't really want to go. And, um, yeah, I, I can't see it happening, especially being a Collingwood player as well. It's, uh, it's, uh, it would be an outrageous deal. But, um, yeah, I think this is a massive off-season for the Blues. I've said it many times on the podcast. This is uh, make or break. Um, you know, there's no excuse next season. They have to play finals. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, and, yeah, just sticking with the Herald Sun. How long have you been with, uh, writing for the Herald Sun? And is that something that you're going to be continuing to do, you know, over the, the next few years as well? Yeah, look, um, I'm happy doing it, you know, and they seem to be happy, uh, you know, getting me to do it. You know, my analysis on um, the lists and also, you know, my uh, experience with the recruiting and the draft. And I think I'm the only one that attempts a top 50 every year, which I've done. And um, you know, it's been interesting over the last three years. I think I've got 45 plus every year out of the top 50 drafted or rookied, and a lot of them too being mature age players. Um, this draft will be a bit different with the list cuts. I think maybe clubs will look more at younger players and um, the mature age players uh, because of list cuts. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out. But yeah, I, I'm enjoying keeping my hand in and that side of it and footy and um, the articles are going well online and that's what will get me the gig again if <laughs> they go well enough. So, uh, yeah, I've been enjoying it. Obviously, this weekend is uh, prelim final weekend, which in, in my view is one of the purest weeks of football um, you ever see. There's some four pretty talented sides going into this one, but who do, you, who do you think will be the two teams playing off in the grand final this year and who do you reckon is going to take it all? Well, it's it's going to be uh, really interesting. Will it be uh, 
Will it be two interstate sides playing? Will it be uh, two Melbourne-based sides playing? Will it be one of each? Um, fairly, uh, you know, Port have a, a great advantage playing on their home deck uh, and um, Brisbane do too. But, uh, but given that, um, you know, Geelong have always played pretty well at the Gabba. So um, uh, hard to say, you know, at this, this point in time, you know, I'm thinking... Um, I'd love to see a Melbourne-based team and your Tigers in there, and I think they're heading the right way. Um, but I think it's going to be one hell of a game on Friday. Um, there was a lot of players missing that are playing this week from the Tigers' point of view from the last time they uh, met. Um, so I'm going to go for the Tigers to upset uh, Port, and I'm going to go for Brisbane to upset Geelong. So I think it'll be a uh, Richmond-Brisbane grand final. Fingers see crossed. how I go. I might be totally wrong. <laughs> Fingers crossed you're on the money there. I'd love to see that. I would love to see that. Yeah. All right. Well, um, well, that's that's pretty much all we've got today, Gary. Um, yeah, we really appreciate you coming on. We've uh, both thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, um, yeah, we really appreciate you coming on. No worries, Marcus. And uh, good on you, Quinn. I, I hope the podcast go well. Thank you very much, no. Gary. Much appreciated. Thanks, Gary. Good on you. Cheers. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed the chat with Gary as much as we did. And as always, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe to us on YouTube, and follow us on Spotify. All the love and support that's been coming through has been greatly appreciated, and it definitely doesn't go unnoticed. So stay tuned for the next episode.